ABC News Radio. Welcome to the Weekly Post, where we take a look back at some of the stories which made the headlines this week. Hello, I'm David Sparks. The government is spruiking a plan to create millions of new jobs in Australia. But while it's good to tackle unemployment, what about the problem of underemployment? It's widely understood that we've got a chronic problem in Australia there with about 1.1 million people who are underemployed. So for people trying to get more paid work than the jobs they've got. Bushfires raged out of control in Tasmania this week. The damage to property and the environment is obvious. But what about the long-term economic damage? If you consider a month ago, Tasmania was booming. Sydney Hobart, taste of Tasmania. A record number of tourists in the region. Now, effectively, uh, there's a don't come south of Hobart uh, warning on the radio every 30 minutes. And uh, unfortunately, the uh, financial hangover from this event is going to last for months and potentially years for some. And if Facebook took such a big hit in 2018, why did the number of people using the social media platform rise substantially? So definitely in the emerging economies. So uh, Philippines, India, those countries have got the growth at the moment. Um, And your traditional markets, USA, UK, Europe, Australia, they're definitely starting to stagnate. That and more coming up on this edition of The Weekly Post. Truckloads of dead fish were dumped in mass graves in Menindee this week as the clean-up from the fish kill on the Darling River got underway. Workers scooped the dead fish out using large crates and loaded them into ute trays before transporting the waste to disposal sites. Resident Karen Page lives on the Darling River in Menindee and she spoke with News Radio's Sandy Aloisi. Today the river's looking uh, okay. We've got a strong wind today and we had a big storm last night. So the uh, river at the front of my place, uh, I can't see any dead fish there today. Um, They've been cleaning it up really fast actually. It would have been a huge job yesterday scooping out what they think around a million dead fish, Karen. Oh, it was unbelievable. Unbelievable at the front of my house and the smell. That's what hit you first, the smell. As soon as you uh, woke up in the morning and opened the door, it was just, the river was just covered. So covered. Has, has that smell now subsided? Yes, it has. It has. The, um, uh, as I said, the, the wind has moved the water, so the water's not uh, just uh, sitting there stagnant. It's actually moving today with the wind. So uh, the smell has gone down. Here and there, there's a few fish uh, caught in amongst the reeds and things like that, but uh, not the amounts that um, were there a couple of days ago. It was just horrific to look at and, uh, and smell. And Karen, when we last spoke, you were talking about the contamination in the river, meaning you had no access to water for cleaning and you were going all the way to Broken Hill just to do your laundry. Has that been rectified now? Uh, no, the, the uh, quality of the water in the, in the river is still the same. It's, um, it's still very contaminated. Um, it can't, can't be used. It can't be used at all. So um, people that live along the river like I do, that rely on it for our household and domestic, um, we need to truck water in 
and uh, the water that we were uh, had available to us to truck in, it was uh, virtually brown, so um, it was no good. So, no, uh, my husband's uh, taking my washing into Broken Hill and doing it in Broken Hill. Wow, still. And I understand you had a power outage overnight. What happened there? Oh, we did. We had a big storm last night where um, big, big dust storm and... uh, lots of thunder and I don't know where, I think something might have been hit by lightning but uh, we had no power from around about 9 o'clock last night till uh, just after 1 this morning so it was uh, a pretty dark (laughs) dark warm night here last night and our phone service has been out as well Um, yeah that's been uh, really bad as well no contact to the outside world for two days it was it was awful because nobody could get in contact with us and we couldn't ring out and being on a property like this you need the phone for emergencies i bet you do gee a tough time for you Uh, you've probably heard that experts are saying that the carp this you know this survivor of the mass fish kill uh is able to stay there in fairly large numbers does that concern local residents Oh, yes. Well, that's all that's going to be left. And, and looking down at the river along the, uh, the, the edges of the river, because the river's dropped all oh, about a metre, and, uh, and looking down and along the edges of the bank, it's, it's just uh, dirty, mucky, uh, where the carp are underneath that's um, sucking along the sides of, of the uh, banks. So... Because we've had the turtles die, the yabbies are dying, everything's dying. That are drinking, uh, the water is is dying. Um, I talked to a neighbour yesterday, and and his pump uh, in the river um, was playing up. So he tried tried to fix it, and he actually got some water in his mouth. And for three days, he was very sick. Karen Page lives on the Darling River in Manindi. She was speaking with News Radio's Sandy Aloisi. The health of the Murray-Darling Basin remained one of the nation's biggest stories all week, especially with the completion of the Murray-Darling Basin Royal Commission in South Australia. It recommended a complete overhaul of the current management plan, including reallocating more water from irrigation to the environment. Commissioner Brett Walker was highly critical finding the Basin Authority was unwilling or incapable of acting lawfully. The South Australian report has also found that Commonwealth officials have committed gross maladministration. Professor Richard Kingsford, who's Director of the Centre for Ecosystem Science at the University of New South Wales, also spoke with Sandy Aloisi. Look, it's a comprehensive and and in in many ways forensic look at the whole of the management of the Murray-Darling Basin, including the role of the Water Act. And I guess the, the key message there is that um, the Commissioner came to the decision that the objects and purpose of the Act, which is essentially environmental to restore the river system, were traded off, if you like, against a triple bottom line philosophy. In other words, um, decisions about impacts on communities came before uh, uh, the, the environment after the science had sort of said this is what the river needs. Mm. And it's quite complex really because the report recommends more water be given to the environment over irrigators but irrigators in New South Wales say doing this will damage 
rural economies affected by the drought. Is that the case and how damaging would that be? Look, they, the, the Commissioner looked at that and, and looked at the economics around that and wasn't convinced that, in fact, the, the information so far has shown that. I mean, let's remember that it's not like water is taken away from irrigators uh, and they lose their living. The, the government actually pays a, a substantial amount of money to buy an irrigation licence. So it is a structural adjustment ability. So. Um, I think one of the, and, and you wouldn't, certainly wouldn't do it in, in a drought like this. I mean, it, it, it would happen over a decade if you went down that path. Well, I was going to say, the Commissioner calling for a total overhaul of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Where does one start? Well, this is it. I think, you know, the, the, the big issue, I suppose, is we haven't even got close to reaching the 2750 target which is um, well below the 7,000 that the science sort of said the river needed. Uh, so I guess the first thing we've got to do is actually reinstate buybacks because that's the most efficient and, and in fact cheapest way of getting that water. And the current list of efficiency projects that the Murray-Darling Basin Authority's got, including one of Menindee, which will exacerbate the fish problem, um, really do need to be taken off the table. And then I guess, uh, it, it's important to think about what the federal government did last year, which was in the Darling River they took 70 um, gigalitres of water off that environmental flow for the river um, with the support of the Labor Party in the Senate. And I think that needs to review, be reviewed because the science about that was, was pretty unconvincing in terms of that decision. And you touched on Menindee, of course, and uh, the mass fish kill there has been in the news so much lately, and we've spoken to locals along that river, one of whom said to us, the fish have survived everything but the government. Do you think that's accurate? Is that fish kill related to the fact that the river is drying up because of what's been implemented by the Murray-Darling Basin Plan? Well, you have to think about what actually happened there was that you get these big blue-green algal blooms when the river stops flowing, and the river is flowing less often than it used to. And I guess the other thing is those fish, some of those fish that died are at least 30 or 40 years old, so they've been through a few droughts before. So, you know, it is fundamentally all about water, and that 70 gigalitres that was cut last year by the federal government would have been, in the longer term, a significant shot in the arm, if you like, for that river system. So I think we really do need to get back and, and think about what this river needs first and then work out how we can put in the structural adjustment to ensure communities do okay. And, I mean, one of the other things to remember is it, it's not just the environment that's doing it badly. Traditional owners along that river, um, graziers, broken hills running out of water, these are all related to the way we're managing the river. Indeed, and I suppose anyone listening to our conversation might say to themselves, well, who's right here? Is it the environmentalists or is it the irrigators? Is it that cut and dried? No, it isn't. And, and I think people like to put it that way. It's, I think it's about um, not irrigators, but what humans are doing to the river um, and, and essentially what the river needs to survive. And we've got to think more broadly than that, it's not just the environment. As I said, there are traditional owners that depend on that water. There are graziers that depend on the flooding that comes down the river. Um, they're all affected by too much water going out of that river. And if you look at the town of Broken Hill 
And the reason it has to have a pipeline, again, a big cost, $490 million to the taxpayer, is because essentially there's not enough water coming down the Darling River. Professor Richard Kingsford, Director of the Centre for Ecosystem Science at the University of New South Wales, speaking with News Radio's Sandy Aloisi. The Prime Minister Scott Morrison this week pledged that his government would create 1.25 million jobs over the next five years. Mr Morrison said the coalition had an outstanding record on job creation, with more than 1.2 million new positions already created since its election in 2013. But the Australian Council of Social Services is urging the government to address the issue of underemployment, addressing the hours of paid work, not just the number of jobs. ACOS Chief Executive Officer Cassandra Goldie spoke to News Radio's Tracy Holmes. We of course are celebrating, you know, sustained economic growth and that is due to a range of factors including of course overseas conditions and uh, I mean over the last period where we've had significant jobs growth, the biggest area of growth has been in health and community services and so in fact that's been um, at least in part fuelled by growth in government spending on the NDIS, so some really big job employment opportunities opening up there particularly for women so that is absolutely um, a good news story and uh, what we're wanting to highlight today is the question for us is over the next period when we've got some concerns about the slowing of uh, the economy, um, what is going to be the concrete plan from the government, the detail of how this jobs growth will be done and then what are we going to do to make sure that the right people are getting that break back into paid employment. Just give us uh, the details again about how many hours a week someone has to work to be considered employed. Well, of course, in the headline figure of us um, now being at 5.1% in terms of people employed, um, unemployed, you only have to have one hour of paid work a week. And so, of course, that headline figure masks a big problem with underemployment. It's widely understood that we've got a chronic problem in Australia there with about 1.1 million people who are underemployed. So for people trying to get more paid work than the jobs they've got, they're not just not covering the basics of what they need. And so this is a real challenge for us. I mean, for example, in the retail sector, we've had a significant decline in full-time employment opportunities. And so people are scraping together those few hours of work. And of course, so the big um, engine room change is to grow employment opportunities that are decent, uh, well-paid and long-term and full-time in many cases. The government has declared that the cuts to weekend penalty rates for many workers would lead to a greater employment. Have you seen any evidence of that? Well, look, the, the research that we've seen has confirmed that, in fact, I mean, there has, of course, already been, um, you know, the cut to um, penalty rates since 1 um, July, and we've not seen any uh, significant improvement there, as we predicted, in terms of employment opportunities. And, in fact, in the retail sector, as I said, we've seen some, you know, disturbing declines, um, hospitality as well. And so that is not going to be what will lead to better employment um, opportunities. We've got to have good investment um, and in part that will be about us investing in 
uh, where there are real problems with um, employment opportunities in regional areas. And so this is a complex task for any government um, and there are a couple of things we would highlight. One is that uh, just relying on tax cuts, particularly at the higher end, is not going to get us there. That is an absolute furphy. Um, we need the government to have an active role investing in employment opportunities and lifting up um, the incomes of people, particularly on lower incomes, where people will be spending, lifting consumer confidence. Um, and that's why this growing divide between people who um, have a decent income and those that do not is a real risk for us in the economy. I, I wonder if you've noticed um, any of the reverse in talking about uh, the loss of penalty rates, because uh, this is just a sample of one. <laughs> but walking around during the Christmas New Year period, I was surprised to see how many stores that would normally be open weren't. And I wondered if that was because people are saying, no, I'm sorry, if you want me to give up my holidays or my Sundays or my public holiday Mondays, I'm not doing it for a standard standard wage. Yes, well, look, this is important for um, us to understand the impact of this essentially ideological position. Um, in the past, there's been no evidence that um, penalty rates is the factor in terms of lifting up employment opportunities. And in fact, socially and economically, penalty rates play a really important role in us carving out the health and wellbeing that we need um, as um, people, as humans, you know, um, families, um, and to ensure that there is an adequate reward if you are going to work these really unsocial hours. Um, and of course, they are precious dollars in the hands of people who are often in very marginal employment um, uh, situations. And so uh, we uh, have been strongly opposed to the reduction in the penalty rate regime. It's an important part of our economic and social fabric. Um, and I think the other part to highlight now is that we've got a real challenge with consumer confidence for um, very significant reasons. We've got this um, contracting adequacy of income for people in the bottom 40% of the community. It won't be any surprise to you, Tracy, that I'm going to kick off my first interview for 2019 by highlighting again that we've got about 800,000 people in Australia who are living on about $40 a day because they are relying on New Start, the unemployment payment or youth allowance. It is not enough and the government must understand that that will be an important part of both decency in terms of income adequacy and helping to get money in the hands of people who will be consumers, who will spend those dollars, including in regional areas, and helping those small businesses to keep their doors open. ACOS Chief Executive Officer Cassandra Goldie, speaking with News Radio's Tracy Holmes. Bushfires raged out of control in Tasmania this week. At one stage, there were 13 emergency alerts on top of numerous watch and act alerts. The Huon Valley, the Upper Derwent Valley and the Central Plateau have all been hit hard and as those communities head into the weekend, the battle continues to gain control over the fires. The physical damage is obvious, but less obvious is the economic damage, which is expected to be long-lasting. Andrew Smith is the manager of an apple orchard business at Grove in the Huon Valley. He told News Radio's Steve Chase the full extent of damage won't be known for weeks. We're 42 k's directly south of Hobart and we're on the northern tip of a fire that's burning about three kilometres south of us. In fact, that 737 is flying directly over us to drop that gel and we can watch that working from from our orchard here. Um, 
It's pretty uh, quiet and under control at the moment. It seems the fire seems to be surging during the day with some wind and, and seems to be brought more under control and, and more manageable overnight. Have you sustained any damage to property in that district? Look, we haven't. There almost certainly is. We're a substantial employer in the region and we have family, staff uh, and casual staff that, that live very close and um, a substantial portion of those are out of their houses at the moment, evacuated into an emergency centre. And really, we won't know the full extent of, of any damage, I would say, for for another couple of weeks. And what about your business? Is it under any threat at this stage? Look, I'm, I'm not sure. We, we have a couple of businesses here. One is a primary production business. The other is a tourism enterprise. And from a tourism enterprise uh, standpoint, there's going to be a huge hangover, financial hangover from this event. If you consider a month ago, Tasmania was booming, Sydney Hobart, Taste of Tasmania, yeah. a record number of tourists in the region. Now, effectively, uh, there's a don't come south of Hobart uh, warning on the radio every 30 minutes and people are evacuating their houses. And uh, unfortunately, the uh, financial hangover from this event is going to last for months and potentially years for some. I have to say that uh, this sort of weather is... Something we're not used to hearing about from, from Hobart, of all places. 1967 was the last major bushfire event in this region, and this, our family farm was affected by that. In 2013, we had the Dunalley fires. But look, Tasmania is Australia's national park. Uh, unfortunately, when it's hot and dry like this, and you see these instances where we get monsoons in the north of the country and they get extreme rainfall, Generally, in those cases, it's extremely dry in the south of the country, and that's what we've got now. It's forgotten how to rain in Tasmania at the moment, and uh, and everything is is tinder dry and and ready to burn. Do you know, or have you been told, how long this uh, state of alert is likely to last? Uh, well, I don't know, and I'm not sure that anyone knows, to be honest. Um, uh, to the west of us, 20 kilometres, you've got 60,000 hectares of, of bush on fire. Uh, four or five kilometres to the south of us, you've got another 40,000 hectares on fire. There's 1,100 kilometres of fire frontage in Tasmania at the moment. That's uh, that's more than halfway from from here to Brisbane. Um, so I would say this is going to going to continue to burn for weeks, um, almost certainly months. So yeah, I suppose in the business world you have to adapt, don't you, and do the best you can under the circumstances. Do you have any plans in that regard? <laughs> well, look, we've. Uh, before we can go to uh, go to business and fight human nature, we've always had to beat Mother Nature, and this is just another example of it. I guess uh, for us, it's always been a rain event or a hailstorm that we've been worried about. We we probably didn't think it was fire that was going to affect us, but um, look, the reality is the great thing, and the great thing about this community is this brings the resilience out in people, and uh, regional Australians are incredibly resilient, and uh, this will this will gel and bond people together, and we'll get through it and get on with it. Andrew Smith is the manager of an apple orchard business at Grove in the Huon Valley. He was speaking with News Radio's Steve Chase. And finally today, Facebook appears to have survived a series of damaging privacy scandals more strongly than expected, with the number of people using the social media platform on the rise. 2.3 billion people logged into the site at least once a month last year. That's a 9% jump. To explore this further, ABC News Radio's Kathy Niven spoke to Ryan Shelley, the managing director of digital media agency Pepper IT. There definitely is a trend away from Facebook, especially in um, you know the the established the established countries. Um, 
the up-and-coming countries, the up-and-coming middle class, they're, they're definitely flocking to Facebook. Um, it, it's just so ingrained in our community and how we connect with people that it's even though people say they're turning away from sites like Facebook, it's very, very difficult to disconnect. Where is Facebook seeing the most growth in terms of users then? Oh, so definitely in the emerging economies. So uh, Philippines, India, they, those countries are, have got the growth at the moment. Um, in your traditional markets, USA, UK, Europe, Australia, but they're definitely starting to stagnate. And why is that? Oh, it's it's like, like any market. So um, they, those countries were the first to uh, jump on board and the growth was... Um, you know, explosive, and like any trend, the the trend does come to an end, and the exponential growth does taper off. Well, annual advertising revenue is up thirty percent on last year. Is it a sign of just how powerful the site is for advertisers, even in the wake of public outrage? Yeah, hundred percent. So, um, marketing has definitely changed. Um, uh, no, definitely for our clients and or you know for all our colleagues, the marketing dollars that were spent elsewhere, they're starting to realise that they can get value in, in using sites like Facebook to more accurately target their potential clients and, uh, and arguably do it cheaper than they could via traditional media. So Ryan, Facebook hasn't completely escaped punishment for data breaches, with Apple taking unprecedented action against it for an app that paid users to hand over their information. So how does this app work? If you can run us through that. Yeah, sure. So, so basically, um, the, the Apple ecosystem is very protective. Apple will not allow programs or apps onto their systems that aren't very heavily vetted. Uh, Facebook used a, a bit of a loophole. They told Apple that the program was for internal use only. Uh, and then they made it and they marketed it to people who wanted to, um, you know, be paid money in exchange for their data. So Facebook was very open about it. Facebook did say to people, we will give you money. I think it was about 20 US dollars a month and we will take your data. These people knowingly signed up for that. Um, Apple is just upset that Facebook did this by saying that the, you know, the application was for internal use as opposed to going through Apple's standard um, you know, uh, analysis of applications on the Apple ecosystem. But isn't this data mining still happening? Oh, it, it, data mining is happening every every minute of the day on everything we do. It, it, any app, any electronic device you use, there is data being mined about you. So it's it's just finding that trade-off between, you know, do I want to live in a connected world and, you know, live my life or do I want to disconnect and not be able to communicate with people? So do you think that more crackdowns will be coming for Facebook? Oh, look, Facebook's going to have a hard slog in front of them. Um, in terms of more crackdowns, I, I don't think they could get any, you know, more crackdowns than what they're facing at the moment. But the positive thing is it's, it's, it's in the public conversation at the moment. So people are at least now aware that the information they're talking about and sharing on platforms such as Facebook, they're, they're now aware of it and they're being a little bit more guarded about things that they may not want, you know, the rest of the world to know. Ryan Shelley is the managing director of digital media agency Pepper IT, speaking with News Radio's Kathy Niven. And that's all for this edition of the Weekly Post. I'm David Sparks. Bye for now. ABC.net.au/newsradio. Get your news now.